You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with your hosts, Andy Grant and Apio Hunter. Real Men Feel is all about encouraging men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to opening up discussions that most men aren't having, but you certainly don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel podcast is produced live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern for your growth and enjoyment. You can find more information about the Real Men Feel movement at realmenfeel.org. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and at facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. This is a weekly program and your comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in the Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get into this week's show. Hey everybody, welcome to Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant, and welcome to episode 42, the first episode of 2017. Woo. Yeah. Celebration, baby. I need, I need some dancing girls and music. Get this going. Normally, I'm the one that's doing woo. Well, here's your chance. With me, as always, my friend host, Apio Hunter, for his woo. Right? Woo. Yay. <laughs> cool. So, um, t- tonight's show, we have more of residual positive effects from my participation in the New Order Training with the Mankind Project. Um, we're going to have our guest is Ben Gaddis, who I met through the Mankind Project. We met at um, what's called Homecoming. It's after the actual event of the weekend. And I, you know, Ben might have been the first person who came up to me that I didn't know saying he listened to the podcast and really dug it. And then that gets you an automatic invite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Welcome, <it's>... Ben Gaddis. <laughs> Thank you very much. Great, have you. great to be with you guys. Um, for, for those who uh, weren't with us, with the two of us, we, we spent a lot of time laughing and fucking around before so i just you know and andy asked me like how do you want to start and i said let's just keep fucking around and uh <laughs> here we are so indeed indeed and it's happy to finish. be fucking around with you guys <laughs> that totally <laughs> works <laughs> i love it. i love that we're already laughing and stuff because the you know that the topic of tonight was going to be looking at sexual abuse and you you really had an interesting take in that talking about humanizing it and, and looking at both sides of it so, so why don't we dive in? Then, so like, where does your you know experience around this issue come from? <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, so I'll I'll say first of all, yeah, the the obvious reason to me of why I you know spent so much time laughing and fucking around with you guys is because of how nervous I am um, to uh, be talking about a subject that I've been thinking about since I was probably around 12 um in a in a pretty serious way in in a in a learning about and figuring out kind of way um and, you know and i i do work with sexual abuse professionally and i have for a few years now um but it's really a a topic and a subject that i've had to feel my way through many different sides of for uh, you know, almost 20 years, I guess. Um, so that's really the, 
core of my experience um, is, you know, things that things that I experienced as as a teenager, as a as a young kid. Um, so, with your permission, um, I guess I can sort of jump right into that, and and um, yeah, and that's and that's what makes me nervous too. I mean, it's it's um, it's not every day in my work as a therapist or in my work that I'm doing now with uh, prevention that I, uh, that I tell my whole story and then also talk about the professional aspects of it, you know? So, um, let's see. So I am 30 years old now. Um, when I was around 12, 13, um, I found myself being very strongly, uh, attracted to a friend of mine. And I um, basically, to say that I abused him is a, um, I've, I've found that that, I've actually been, I've had to, I've had to backpedal on that <laughs> term um, because it, it was, I, I pressured him into, you know, doing sexual things with me um, a couple of times. And then I afterward was so terrified of being found out, being thought of as gay, um, you know, in middle school that I, you know, I told him I would kill him if he told anybody. Um, he quickly moved away, um, right after that. And I haven't talked to him since. Um, so when I, so starting when I was 12 and 13, I had this experience of, um, what at the time I really thought of as perpetration, um, that I, you know, had, had done something violent. Um, and I spent a long time, um, you know, researching, I was precocious as ever kind of kid. <laughs> The internet was just being born. Um, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what what I was and who I was and what I had done and, and what the consequences of it were morally. Um, so, so, so Ben, yeah. even at the, at the age of 12, you decided you had been a perpetrator. Right, right. Yeah, it, there was a lot of other things that I had decided. In fact, it's interesting, you know, I, I did not even decide that I was gay or that I knew I was gay or as I know now that I'm bisexual, but I, that label of, I did something terrible. I am a perpetrator that just fit right in there with me. And you know, what I know now about it is that that really has to do with the, the core of shame that I just grew up with and that it was just ready for me to, it fit right in for me, you know, so it was almost, like almost this shame was looking for an action to give yourself more shame about. Yeah. I mean, something like that, you know, I don't, I don't have it, uh, totally nailed down, but I think, um, yeah, just, you know, the, the way I felt about myself as, you know, so many 12 year old boys do feel about themselves. So it's just in the initial putting the pressure on your friend, Mm -hmm. And in those moments, did did you feel bad and this is wrong, or did that at that at, at in the moments did it seem like oh this is good this is going to be fun or you... it felt no you know I mean really the the 
it came crashing down immediately after, you know, it was, it was a lot of sexual energy. It was a lot of curiosity. It was a lot of playfulness. Um, and again, that's, that's one of the reasons why when I've looked back at it, I've had to really, again, backpedal of, of saying I'm, when I was 12, I, I was a, you know, sexual offender. Um, and really, although, you know, I'm, I'm sure to somebody listening, um, that might be the right term for, for what I did at that time, you know? So it's, it's, it's a little, um, sketchy, I know. And, and that's the case with 12 year old boy sexuality yeah. in general. That's, that, that, that's, I, I, I don't care what anyone else thought. And that's why I'm like, what, what did you decide? And when did, so we, right. immediately you felt this was wrong. Yeah. I'm a bad person. I've done something here. Exactly. So, yeah, so that, so that's the piece of that. And, and really the, the reason I start there, um, you know, is because I, I grew up feeling, you know, for the next few years as though I was a, a bad, a really, really bad person. And I couldn't tell anybody about what I did. And I didn't tell anybody. I, I didn't tell anybody about that until I was in my 20s. Um, I, I just completely kept it in. Um, and I talk about everything generally. So that, that took a lot of energy for me to keep that in. Fast forward now, I'm, um, you know, more, certainly more sexually mature. I'm in high school. I'm in the choir and the band. I um, went to a high school that had an incredibly competitive music program. I played trumpet. I sang. I was in every single fucking, you know, musical group that the school had. And it was, it was just a full-time job for me. Um, and, um, the both the band and the choir teacher were you know very um intense personalities and were were very demanding of the students and um you know if you were in their in their good graces you absolutely you know they were parents to you as as they were to me um so uh fast forwarding because there's a lot more to all this <laughs> um just to kind of get the the data and the details out there um it, um my choir teacher um invited me in for private music lessons and this you can start to hear this becomes a much more common uh grooming and kind of uh, abuse story um so private music lessons for over the course of two years um wherein you know, behind closed doors and there was no windows on, on the doors that were closed and locked. And, um, during the lessons, he would do breathing exercises with me and during which he would slide his hand down my pants. Um, and so that happened weekly kind of here and there, uh, in these lessons for over the course of a year and a half, two years or so. Um, the thing that, it, in in some ways, um, it was a common enough thing that that I I knew what was going on. I knew that that was bad, that that was abusive. But when put into the the context of what I was already feeling emotionally about what I had done and that I was a bad person, um, and the fact that I was you know an older uh, victim of sexual abuse. Um, an older male victim, you know, these, these things start to kind of be less and less common. Um, and so the alienation that, um, I felt and, and, 
you, you know, was really strong. Um, and yet I was part of this amazing, beautiful, supportive family and the choir and the band. Um, and I absolutely adored and loved the teacher who was doing this to me. Um, and let's see, again, fast forwarding through a lot of the, the drama of those few years, um, my, my, the end of my junior year, I, I left the choir um, and I decided that something needed to be done. I started learning that this was happening to so many other boys. Um, what, I, what I now think was probably hundreds or a hundred to hundreds of boys over the course of a number of years through these private music lessons. Um, and I, I started to really hate him and really um, resent not just the sexual piece of it, but a lot of the you know, emotional abuse that was going along with it, a lot of the manipulation, um, which again, in such a competitive environment, it was, it was very, very strong. Um, so strong in terms of rewards that I was getting for being, for singing well. Um, and also for being one of one of his minions in his inner circle. Um, so I, I quit the choir and I decided to report it. And um, I started talking to other boys and two other boys joined me. And I spent my entire senior year of high school um, in the uh, reporting process, um, going to the school, going to a therapist, having the therapist say, I need to go and uh, you know, report it, telling both of my parents. It was a drawn out long year of that. Um, then I get to college and, um, and, and I, I was so uh, really hurting from this experience. I needed to get really far away from where I grew up. So I flew all the way out to New Mexico to go to college. I grew up in New York on Long Island, um, go to school in New Mexico. And while I'm in in like one of my first days of college, I find out that he, they finally arrested him. Um, it was, you know, it was all over the newspapers and media. And um, the next few years were uh, me flying back and forth a number of times to the East Coast from school, having to take time out of school to be part of the trial and uh, school, you know, board of education hearings and stuff like that. Um, long story short with that he was found not guilty on all charges which for me <laughs> interestingly at that point i felt a great deal of relief um i never wanted him to go to at that point i never wanted him to go to jail forever i didn't want him to in, encounter more pain than he already had you know these are very common things that that kids feel about you know, um, their abuser. Um, and I, um, let's see, he, yeah, he's found not guilty. I feel relieved. Um, a number of years go by. Uh, I go to graduate school, become a psychotherapist, um, had no intention to do sexual abuse, abuse work per se. Um, I actually had in, in the interim of this, I got involved with the Mankind Project right after I graduated from, from college. Um, and that's really what made me want to be a therapist. I said, I want to do this work professionally. So I go out to California, um, start graduate school. Let's see. Um, I find out that he dies 
um, right when I'm starting graduate school. And um, I drive a n- number of hours to go to his funeral, to kneel at his casket with you know open caskets, see his dead body right in front of me. And right after that, I find out that my internship uh, placement in graduate school is to work in a prison with incarcerated sex offenders. Um, so I start doing that work and I do that for um, about a year and a half after that, um, I work with juvenile sex offenders or, you know, boys with sexually problematic, problematic behavior as, you know, it's a little more correct term these days. Um, <laughs> and uh, fast forward another couple of years, I got so fucking fed up and with the systems and, and the work I was doing really feeling burnt out and I took time off. I went and hiked the Appalachian Trail, um, the whole thing. I just got back from that and just got a job doing uh, sex abuse, child sexual abuse prevention training work, which is what I, I've been doing it for like a week now with a cool organization called Stop It Now. So that's my, uh, that's the, 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 those are the facts. <laughs> well, I invite you to, first, uh, you have tremendous balls and courage for putting that all out there for, for surviving it, for continuing to, to almost be called to that work that you know, life has kind of put you through the ringer around. Um, and just the way you just stated, um, so matter of factly, um, and, uh, don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're sharing your story. You know, I'm, I'm shaking inside, of course, you know, as I'm, as I'm talking about this, but it is something I've done before, you know, tell the whole story in its entirety and a number of times. And um, I think it kind of, it's, it, it, like I was said before, it makes me nervous. It makes me shake inside. Um, it's a lot easier to do it now than it used to be. Um, and I don't think I can, I don't think it's fair to talk about this stuff um, without some, real uh emotional experience be for myself being part of it you know to really make it real um so yeah humanizing sexual abuse that's (laughs) yeah Yeah. you know ben first of all i have to say i have to agree with andy that it's incredibly courageous of you to be able to put yourself out there and speak of it even though you've spoken of it in the past one of the things i've observed in talking to other people who've also gone through sexual abuse is that even you know years and years and years could have gone past and they never are able to get you know it never gets easier the the telling of the story nearly truly never gets easier on an emotional level there's always that terror there's always that you know feeling the shaking on the inside but at Mm -hmm. the same time you know i i certainly have to to add my voice to to say thank you for for sharing that deeply personal story um one of the things i've been curious about uh, as you were telling your story how much of that experience has allowed you to really be able to connect and empathize with the people that you've worked with right <laughs> so um, i'm glad you asked that because it it brings me back to some of the moments that things really crystallized in the work for me when it went and and basically the the process and it ties into what you were just saying, Apio and Andy, that 
um, the, the, the telling and the retelling of it. And I think this is a common enough experience again with, you know, people who've experienced sexual abuse is, or any trauma really, it, it goes from being my story, my neurotic internalized secret world to being not mine anymore. Um, it's, it's the world. It's, um, and I don't mean that in a, in a woo woo way. <laughs> I mean that in a very, uh, I, I feel that in my heart when I, when I tell it and it re the amount of energy that gets released when I'm able to move through it in that way and hold it in that way, um, is really, really powerful for me. And I think, um, really informs the, the work that I do. And, um, the moment, <laughs> well, this is a longer detailed experience. I won't get into it too much, but it really happened in when I was working in the prison. Um, my abuser was dead. I saw his dead cold body in front of me. I cried my fucking eyes out. I, there's no, I mean, and he, and he was a young guy. Um, I don't just, you know, for what it's worth, I don't know if, um, you know, how he died. I don't know. I don't know if he took his life, um, or if you know, there were natural causes. Um, so there was some residual weight from that, not knowing, um, you know, why, why he died, um, in the form of guilt for me around having been the one to report him and, um, really bring to a grinding halt the, uh, the, the empire <laughs> that he had built. Right. So anyway, um, he's dead and I'm, and I'm in working in prison and I'm seeing these, these men, 84 of them on a devoted cell block that, um, was a therapeutic community for sex offenders. You know, it's all groups all the time. There was no individual therapy. So I'm just sitting in circle with these men, um, getting to getting the opportunity, the privilege really, um, which I, I, I've really come to think of it as that, that a lot of victims of um, sexual abuse, I, I don't get to have to sit in a circle <laughs> in prison with men working on their shit around, um, you know, being perpetrators. But it was going through all the rage and all the anger that I felt toward the inmates I was working with that and actually being given permission by the program and the supervisor I was working with to actually channel that that frustration in a healthy professional therapeutic way um, that allowed me to I think start to see them as who they were and less as you know the the being like the the man who abused me um, so, That's so see, seeing them just not as, as offenders, seeing other aspects of them more than... Yeah, I mean, seeing, seeing them, them weep, seeing them scream, seeing them be scary assholes, seeing them in their full humanity, you know? Um, and in a way that I was obviously too young at the time to have seen my own abuser when, when that was happening. I couldn't see him as human. He was... Uh, he wasn't a monster to me. He was a, a powerful God, you know? Um, and 
yet some of these men I met in prison, when I first encountered them, you know, they, they did have the scales of monsters. They did have the, the presentation of just absolute creep. I mean, the, the you know, the, the, a lot of the stereotypes are, are, are real for some of these guys. Um, and yet to, to look at them long enough and to be with them and to sit with them and to heal myself, you know, during that process, um, allowed me to really start to ask some really, really important fundamental questions about all this, like, why, why does this happen? Um, and that's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. You can't just answer that in this quick sentence. No, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> no, I can't do that one on Twitter. I can, I can, uh, I'll, I can give it a shot, but it's, um, you know, it's complicated. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the reason why people do things, why people do anything. It's always complicated. It's mm -hmm. always really complicated. Sex is so fucking complicated. Mm, yeah. You know, it's interesting because one of the things I've certainly noticed in, in that field is that it is the reasons for the reasons of why are mm. almost as unique as the individual themselves. Right. It makes it so complicated because right. there might, you might be able to draw certain conclusions based off of commonalities and patterns and things like that. But ultimately, the, what, what drives a person to do what they do ultimately, and to, at least this is just my own observation off of conversations that I've had, has been that it is uniquely – their decision is uniquely theirs. It is unique to them right. in spite of commonalities that they might share with other folks. And, and isn't that so true in any realm of uh, the mental health field, with any mental health diagnosis, with any, any person labeled as a, a schizophrenic? Um, what triggers their psychotic episodes? It's, it's what's going on in their life. You know, it's, it's as subjective and as, as sticky and complicated as that person. And that, you know, they are not just a pedophile, a schizophrenic. And I, and I don't, and I don't, I, I say that lightly because I don't like lumping uh, pedophilia right in there, you know, with all the diagnoses um, as being the same thing because it's not, but, yeah. but to that point of, of how incredibly complex and human every single story is and every, every bit of it is. And, and that's something that we've, I think as a society and as a, as a mental health field, um, we've come to, we, we've certainly come to appreciate that with victims uh, as a society, um, I think more and more. Um, my, my big beef, and this is speaking as both a victim and as a person who grew up seeing myself as a perpetrator, we, we don't do that with the other side of the story you know, with, with perpetrators. And we don't do that for a very good reason. I mean, there's, there's a million um, terrifying um, reasons and risks to humanizing offenders. Um, but what happens is that I think in the, in the mental health field in particular in treatment, the specific treatment that victims often get is, I think, a lot of times leaves out the humanity of, of their particular, 
perpetrator, their abuser. Um, and that's, that's a thing that I remember when I was 18 and I started seeing a therapist, I felt like I had to fight the therapist in order to include my feelings about this man that had done horrible things to me, but, but how much I cared about him and loved him. And that was, um, it, it was almost not welcome in the therapy. And I found, I found that with other therapists and I've, of course, you know, I've worked with some amazing therapists as well. Um, but it's a, the, the field and I think society as a whole, um, we, we don't tell the two stories in parallel, you know, we don't look at what happened from the victim's perspective and the perpetrator's perspective in this situation. We, we, we want victims to tell their stories. Of course, we want perpetrators to tell their story. Of course, very seldom are they looked at in tandem. It's much, it's presented. One of these people is good and one is bad and we want to keep it that clean and nice. Yeah. And, and it needs, see, it's, it's tricky too, because it needs to be that clean in some really basic ways too. I think for, for accountability to work the way it needs to work, there does need to be a degree of good and bad, especially for kids. Sure. Um, you know, it doesn't work if it, it's, and it's not true if, if, um, if it's too gray, if it's too wishy-washy and it starts to, because then you're into blaming the victim territory, which is really not the point of, of finding nuance in these stories. Um, so the real trick, I mean, and I, you know, I was trying to think about how I would talk about this tonight with you guys. And I think what it really comes down to and what I love knowing that Andy, um, you just did the Mankind Project weekend and we can talk about some of the, the, the teachings of that um, is that in this sexual abuse work with victims and more so with perpetrators, um, it comes down to how do you hold a man accountable? And I say man, cause you know, the vast majority of perpetrators are men. How do you hold a man accountable and also love him at the same time? And to me, that's also the, the core of, the work, the men's work that we do together, you know, that has nothing to do with sexual abuse necessarily or, or treatment or anything. It's just this, this dialectic of, of love and care and tough love and accountability. Right. Cause if, if you just label someone a monster, well, there's nothing we can do, put them away forever. That's the end. And it kind of denies any aspect of humanity. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's the thing that's always the hardest, but it's always also the most fun and interesting working with um, offenders, whether the, the kids I've worked with, the juvenile offenders or adults is this, this drama that's always unfolding at, at the facilities that I've worked in about whether you're being too soft or too hard, you know, and it's, really the, the treatment is, is finding the right balance between accountability and, and nurturing. Um, and I just think that's, that's just also so true for us as men in, in the world in general. You know? Yeah. Um, and that a lot of the men's work that, that includes our history of violence um, and also our 
current needs as men in this world that we live in today is, is really about synthesizing the, again, you know, love and accountability. That's right. comes down to something like that. You know, you know it's, it's, I, I, I've heard you speak about accountability, you know, several times now. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like the big struggle with, with, with not only treatment, but also just the conversations in general, self-conversations, as well as conversations with, with the people that you're working with, is how do you strike, you know, where, how can you hold somebody accountable while at the same time, and just kind of rephrasing what you said, just right. so I can understand this better. Sure. How do you understand, how do you hold them accountable while at the same time not judging them? and not applying the labels that could potentially stick with them for the rest of their life. I could be potentially reinforce a harmful conversation that they're having. Right. And, and, and I, exactly. And I think the coolest thing, I mean, <laughs> cool, maybe that's not the right word. The most interesting and important thing is that when you get that question, right. about <laughs> how do you do both of those simultaneously? When you get that right in the world of sex offender treatment, it's a public safety issue. You're preventing future offenses when those guys get out of prison. That's, yeah. you, you can't, it doesn't work if it's just toughness and no love. It right. actually doesn't. Those guys get out and they're alienated and they're angry and they have no social skills and have never been loved in their lives, some of them. And yeah. they reoffend. Of course they do. Right. So, so right. when you nail that, that, that balance between those, those poles, and to me, again, that's like when you nail uh, you know, mature masculinity. So, so what, what was starting to happen in the prison is I started seeing these, some of these guys, I, I started actually getting jealous of them, of the, the work that they were able to do in this intensive 24 seven therapeutic community. That is not the way the rest of the world is. And, and what a, fucking weird backwards thing for me to think and say that I was jealous of of inmates getting getting and, and of course you know some of them are just still total assholes and they'll always be assholes I'm not <laughs> none of them were necessarily so the most a, a of lucky bastards entirely then yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> but, but when I started to understand those dynamics I was like fuck every single every man needs that you know a, right. a community that that can give that um so, so this is what you mean by humanizing it. And I want to be careful that humanizing perpetrators of, of, of any violent act is not the same as like normalizing it and saying it's okay. Absolutely. It's not. just realizing, yeah, it's, it's not just a monster. We presented no. one, one aspect and it's easy to judge and label and monster put you away forever and, you know, you should be dead. And, and what I learned exactly, when I learned working in the prison and I've, and I've tried to stay <laughs> true to this is what it humanizing does not only doesn't mean normalizing, but it means also expressing the rage that I feel toward those acts, toward those men having done those acts from the fullness of my humanity, you know, really, really um, not holding back on that either. Um, that's super, super important. Um, when I've toured around some, sex offender treatment programs. Um, I've, I've worked in a couple, as I said, but I, you know, I've come to learn the, the field a little bit. Um, you do sometimes see 
that kind of holding back and that 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 coddling, which again is is bad treatment for those guys. They they need to actually hear the the, the fullness of the rage that their victim feels that society feels that it is not okay ever right. and and have that be done in a nurturing loving way and and be held in a community while hearing that um it's too bad this program i was working in in in, in rhode island is you know no longer exists because it was just fucking phenomenal the way that the way that they pulled that off you know, I you said something that kind of struck me, and it kind of goes along with a, a theme that seems to be emerging quite regularly in conversations that I've had with folks, which is compassion versus understanding. Hmm. Coming to understand the individual in order to help them achieve the fullness of their humanity mm-hmm. and embrace that totality of, of themselves and the humanness and everything else. And compassion, while it's a wonderful, beautiful human trait, can also hold us back and keep us from being able to move on because the compassion almost provides a a platform for justification, a platform for being able to continue the story because it's like, oh, it's okay. It's okay without, without the accountability that's actually there. And so where do we stop being compassionate? How, where do we, move toward understanding so mm-hmm. that we can basically, you know, let's, 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 let's stop this shit and let's, let's, you know, get things working properly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And if, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a therapist that's often super critical of, of therapy and therapists. Most are know. funny enough. I've discovered that. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, this is what my podcast is going to be about when I start a podcast, by the way, is, is um, therapists talking about therapy. <laughs> therapists um, putting down therapy? <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and propping it up when, oh. when it's appropriate. But right. um, yeah. no, but I, but I think it's, you know, to what you were just saying, um, I mean, really, you know, being, being nice doesn't, doesn't cut it all right. the time. And, and that's, you know, really the, the Mankind Project, the work, the, the men's movement starting in, in the seventies um, was certainly a response to um, a, 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 it was a counter movement to men um, losing a, a kind of, um, or I would say confusing, um, n- n- you know, niceness with strength. Um, you know, and I think a lot of our ideas about, you know, mature masculinity started to be born at that point, mature, modern masculinity, you know, um, not toughness, but, but strength and courage, invulnerability. Right. Um, it's, it's fascinating how, when we as men are vulnerable, how incredibly invulnerable we also become to all of the stuff that can be thrown at us hmm. Hmm. um yeah say i'm not i'm not sure exactly what you mean but I, I like the words <laughs> yeah well it's just it's just something that kind of like i'm you know just kind of occurred to me just now how in our vulnerability hmm. 
we somehow manage to embrace the totality of our humanness, the totality of who we are mm. as human beings, as you know, and those who who tend to be a bit more spiritual, mm -hmm. you know, spiritual beings having a human experience. And in the process, we make ourselves invulnerable to to so many things because we are, we give ourselves permission to be right. fully, completely who we are. Right. It, that's that's right. I, I, what I hear in that is something along the lines of you know um, vulnerability and and emotional expressiveness, which I guess is the the whole thing you guys are doing on this mm -hmm. podcast, right? Um, <laughs> that is a a protective measure that's a that's a defense that's ultimately a defense me mechanism that we humans have developed to um to be in the world to be present in the world and be strong in the world yeah. without and it's not it's not the same as toughness yeah yeah definitely cool so so i have some <laughs> i have some experience in this world a, a little different um, mm. when I was five, I was molested by a neighbor and mm. happened repeatedly. And I didn't remember it until I was, um, in my twenties wow. after multiple suicide attempts. And I remember thinking as I remembered it, like, oh my God, since, since I was molested, this means I'm going to become a molester. Right. Um, right. so I wondered if, if, if that was, if that's a myth, if that really common are, are most of the guys you, you deal with the offenders had all been something that had been done to them. And this was kind of this hurt that gets presented, passed on, passed on, passed on. I mean, I, I almost want to turn it back onto you a little bit and, and ask you what you think. I mean, and, and I mean, thank you for, for sharing that, that piece of it too, you know, your experience. Um, it, and it does sound like you, as well as a lot of um, people that have experienced abuse, you know, you do kind of in, internalize that social message of, this must mean I will hurt somebody because hurt people hurt people. Or in the case of sexual abuse, this cycle of violence, you know, I mean, is, is that something that you, that you lived with? You know, it's worried about? Yeah. It's something that's certainly worried about. And I was still never, was this something I decided myself? Was it from too many, too many talk shows and news programs? Um, right. It was also when I was having the memories, there was a big, you know, thing of, of children were making up memories and you couldn't trust these things. And I'm like, Oh, did I just make this up now? I know what, can I believe my own memories? Can I, you know, I did, I, I was really just lost for a long time, but it did right. make me, you know, look and like, was I ever abused? Was that situation? Was I, was I, you know, an mm. equal willing party open to whatever happened or was I somehow an aggressor? You know, could I have turned bad? Did I, you know, I was looking at all these different, ever, almost every interaction I ever had with, with, with any person see mm. was oh was i you know am i a monster right am i dehumanizing myself because i had been uh, a victim right right yes it, exactly i mean i i can relate to that so strongly my experience um dating in college for me you know didn't exist because of that it i was so terrified when i you know fr from having experienced both of these sides of of abuse that, you know, I, I couldn't possibly do anything sexually without it being uh, harmful to somebody like that, that. That's just something I lived with. And I was terrified as a result of not just my, not just my sexuality, um, but my agency as a, as a, my heart in the world, I couldn't flirt with 
with the girl I was attracted to, you know, I mean, it really, really, um, you know, talk about emasculation. That's, I think that, that fear, um, is very powerful. Um, so, so to your, your question, um, I think the best way to put it right is that when you look, when you go into a, a prison, say, and you look at a room full of, of sex offenders, the um, chances that they have experienced sexual abuse themselves is extremely high. Um, that's also true across the board for other non-sexual kinds of uh, offenders and murderers, um, you know, guys that are in prison for a lot of other reasons, you know, so sexual abuse is, it's, it's extremely common in, a, in an inmate population, you know, and of course that overlap with um you know high mental illness rates and um you know there's a lot there's a lot swirling around there um in a in a prison population um but is it a cause um you know I, I actually just had this conversation with my mom the other night i don't remember what we were talking about but but she was asking me a similar thing about you know causation and it's kind of hard yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to explain it. I don't see it as necessarily a cause. Um, and again, that part of that is because, for example, you know, not every sexual abuser is a pedophile that, that abuses a child. In fact, something like 10% of, um, you know, men who have sexual abuse charges on them are considered uh pedophiles and meaning attracted to younger children generally um so it's it's much more situational actually the abuse situations that happen and, and like apio you were saying earlier the um trying to remember what you were saying earlier i don't know <laughs> so you know <laughs> but, but i saw you making a face about about that or, or so, reacting in some way to that thing I was just saying about not every uh, child sexual abuser is a pedophile. Mm, right, um, right, right. Yeah, that's a really, really, really key, important point. I think to under to begin to understand what is actually going on then for the vast majority of um, sexual child sexual abuse situations and cases. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, this is just how I perceive it on a purely you know, energetic level. No scientific yeah. evidence whatsoever <laughs> to back it up or whatever. But yeah. the way I perceive it on an energetic level is that these are people who are somehow trying to recapture a sense of innocence that they felt that they lost. Hmm. That's what it feels like to me. I would say in my experience, that is true for some guys and is, yeah. and is true in less cases than you might think. Right. Um, you know, that, that is certainly true for, you know, there's, there's, there's all these different little subgroups that I came up with when I was working with, with inmates. And, and one of them certainly is the recapture innocence group, you know, right. uh, and, and not, but not all of them are diagnosed pedophiles right. and, and, or even undiagnosed pedophiles, it, diagnosed <laughs> not being part of it. You know, meaning, like ha having a a 
either an exclusive or a non-exclusive attraction to young children. Um, a, a man can still abuse, sexually abuse a young child without having a general attraction to young children. Now, right. th and this is where it starts to get a little, you know, to me, and when I talk to, when I talk to guys about this subject, it starts to move into this territory of like, wait, so that could, I could do that? Like, th it starts to get a little scarier in terms of, um, it moving away from this, you know, monsters and angels story more toward, uh, you know, a story about human beings and what happens to, to human males um, in our lives and, and, you know, right. sexual feelings and se sexual situations. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's a million, a million, a billion <laughs> reasons <laughs> Um, why and again that recapture innocence is a I've seen that for sure and it's not it's it's not it's yeah, certainly not not totally but certainly for those who say who appear I would say who tend to focus exclusively on the young children for you know, versus those who that's just maybe a group to whom they have had you know they've expressed themselves sexually or whatever yeah yeah, the, the thing that woke me up to that originally um, was when I'm sitting in a, a group of um, a child molesters group in prison, there's like, let's say 15 guys, and the most of them are, are hating on and yelling at, shaming this, the one guy who's talking about how he is attracted to young children, and they're all calling him a pedophile. And I was, I was scratching my head, like, what the fuck? Like, I thought they're all pedophiles. Like, and, and, and <laughs> right. it took me some time to, to really listen to them and say, no, I, this situation that I got into with, with my niece or whoever it, it whoever was, the victim was right. whoever the victim or victims were, right. um, yeah. it, it, that's, it's like, no, I'm a, I'm so many of these guys. And I really had to start to believe them some of them not all of them because <laughs> it's obviously it's it's you know the last thing you want to admit in prison is that you're sexually attracted to young children i i get that that's sure yeah. forthright about that but but i but then i started reading more and realizing you know that there's there's really good um not a lot but there is some research about how low um the the prevalence of um pedophilic offenders are the flip side of that is that the serial pedophilic offender typically has about 10 times more victims than the non pedophile so there's a lot more victims per man per offender right um and then there's also the group of pedophiles if you believe this is a, a real true thing, which I absolutely do and know in my heart that it's a true real thing. There are the, the guys who um, don't ever offend, who don't ever act out. Um, and there's, there's interestingly, and this is something I'm learning about in my, my new job with prevention, there's, there's virtual groups online of, you know, one is called Verped, um, Virtuous Pedophiles. Um, 
people, and I, I, at this point should stop saying men, it's, it's men and, and women and kids even who um, are, oh, cops just went by. <laughs> um, I think you're safe. Yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> it's a really charged conversation, I know. Um, it, who, who are committed to not acting out. So then definition-wise, so is pedophilia the sexual attraction and versus just a, a power trip, abusing someone because they're there or? Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, I, th I, th I think that exactly. I think that more and more the, the, the definition, it's, it's not, it's kind of a false equivalent to call it a sexual orientation in some senses because it is so tied into abuse and offending and, and, there, and legal definitions and things. But um, but it, more and more, I think it will start to be seen, at least in the mental health community and the forensic treatment communities, as a sexual orientation. Meaning, I am generally attracted to young children. It doesn't mean I'm attracted to every single one. I might also be attracted to adults. Um, so again, that's where that exclusive... Right. versus non-exclusive uh, goes. And I, I really see that treatment moving hopefully more and more in the direction of understanding that and um, actually actively finding those people to have them um, uh, find a way to, to come out of the darkest, dankest closet in our society to support each other. That's something but, that- And so these are peer support groups that these online groups have trying to help yeah. each other. And, and I guess, yeah, because there's no- there, between. Yeah, you know, there's, I mean, it gotta, I, that's the most like a taboo, beyond taboo subject that you can't openly, you know, well, like, like this show, you can, we're having conversations that people aren't having. And, but yeah, <laughs> sure. right, confessing your pedophilia attractions and, you know, um, that, that's a tough conversation to have. So sure. sure. If, if any, anybody listening and for you guys too, there's a, um, a this American life episode, um, from about maybe four, three or four years ago. And I forget the name of it. Shit. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a, you know, there's a half of the, uh, the radio show is devoted to a kid. Um, coming out i think he's like 18 at the time and he comes out as a pedophile and starts this online group support group and it's it's just one of my favorite episodes of this american life they really really they nail it and they go after um they don't just go after the subject but they go after it in a way that um pro that that gives promise and and some kind of vision of a solution down the road um, that's yeah. interesting. Um, yeah. Just to kind of kind of change gears here really quick. Sure. Uh, in the chat, Lori had had put in a question about male to male abuse. You know, how, in your yeah. practice, in your experience, have you have you noticed if boys get blamed the same way that women do in in that abusive oh. situation where the victim, the the male victim, mm -hmm. you know, especially in the younger cases, you know, the pedophilia cases, do the boys get blamed? In the sense of um, blaming the victim, um, 
Yeah, a way, that young boy was dressed in a way that he deserved it. That right, kind right, of right. stereotypical. No, I mean, I, I mean, right. certainly, certainly not. Right. I mean, that's that's there's there's almost a an obvious flip and turn there I can give about it, which is like, no, of course they they weren't wearing a skirt. Right. Probably, you know. <laughs> but, right. But 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 the 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 punishment, if you will, the the weight of it, um, I think is. I, I'll put it this way. Whenever I see statistics about the prevalence of male victims, I, I, I never believe them because I think that it's, it's even more grossly underreported than female victims. Um, you know, you see like, it's like one in four women and one in 10, maybe you see sometimes up to like one in 20 males at some time. And it depends on how the statistics are written. But, but every time I see that, I'm like, that's, that's, that's because of the, the problem with, um, men and masculinity and secret keeping and shame and lack of emotional expression and every single problem we know us men have that's one in 20 come on like yeah. so right. yeah the, the secrecy is um is very very heavy um you know to to see guys in prison in their 50s 60s 70s talk about their the their sexual abuse and, and not, not to say that's exclusive to to men um to to go that long without understanding or or telling or even realizing you know their the experiences they had as a young child but to to see a man in his 60s say get that off of his chest but also it seemed for the first time in his life be given permission to have a fucking emotion about yeah. anything you know, I think that to me is is one, one way to kind of parse the difference um, that in the way that men and women hold sexual abuse in our society um, as victims. Yeah. One way I certainly see victims change differently is like young girls sexually abused, women raped. Oh, it's a, it's a tragedy, terrible. And if young boys have a relationship with teachers that's the most probably thing i was like oh, yeah go get them yeah what a lucky kid yeah and it's, absolutely, it's that absolutely. There. There's, right. yeah there's that and plus no there's also the i you know to kind of speaking to what you just said ben about mm. uh, about this this idea that we have to be tough and men are perpetrators not victims men can't possibly be victims because they're supposed to be tough they're supposed to be able to fight off you know whoever it is that's abusing them or whatever right and you know yeah god it it, it sorry i i <laughs> no no go for it go for it. it 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 reminds me of this this idea that i kept i i keep having when i do work with men who are victims or or boys is the victim perpetrator paradigm um you know came out of, um, it seems to me, came out of a movement of women coming forward. And, um, you know, in the last half of the 20th century and um, rape crisis centers um, and victim hotlines, and I mean, the whole movement really being born out of that. And, and sometimes I think that because of, because it speaks to the history of of misogyny and of of women's oppression and liberation victim works in a way i think 
for um, women in in a way that you know when I when I was treating adolescent boys who were offenders and incarcerated and it was the last 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 identity they would ever take on was victim and and I had to and, and it's so true for I think people that do that work yeah, kind of have to find a way to talk about what happened to them without ever using the word victim and it's not it doesn't, I, I don't think it works in the same way socially. Um, and it was the, and I'll tell you from my, my own experience that when I first saw that first therapist when I was 18 and then did all my reporting and, you know, was talking to the, the district attorney and the school board about all of it, I, it, they kept calling me a victim and saying, you know, it, 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 because it's part of, you know, therapist training 101 is, you know, when someone comes in as, as a victim, make sure that they know that they're a victim, you know, and, and that has some good intention behind it. Obviously it's saying like, you know, make sure, you know, this, this wasn't your fault, et cetera, et cetera. But it was it, the, the humiliation of, you know, I, I went from feeling powerful and in control of, of what had happened to me when I reported it to then being called a victim. Uh, um, it just didn't fit. And I think, you know, it took me a lot of years to be more comfortable with that term, um, the way that I can now. And part of it's also because, again, I was an older teenager when I was abused and I had all the things that happened to me before then. I think, Andy, you know, not to call you a victim, but at, you know, as a five-year-old, one is a, a victim, I think, in a different way than. Well, I, and I would suggest you know, we yeah. could all be victimized without being like again the label of oh you're a victim that feels yeah, like it's yeah, yeah. your entire existence right. <laughs> but no, you could be victimized in moments, but you know, or you you know the abused, the assaulted, the whatever. But no, I, I mean I get what you're saying because you can feel empowered. I'm speaking up. I'm fighting for myself. I'm standing up and putting an end to this. Oh, you poor you poor little victim. You know, let, right. let's let's help you stop feeling bad. Like, wait, what? You just weakened me. Yeah, and 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 let us. Yeah, and and there was the message in there of we we've got this. We can handle this. You don't know anything. You don't know what happened to you. That's that's what it was. It was, and and it, you know, again back to that humanizing, dehumanizing experience. What was dehumanizing was having other people think that they know what I was feeling or what happened to me and calling me a victim and saying, um, you know, there's textbooks written about you. We know what happened. You know, that, that is, that is dehumanizing to, to both victims, to offenders, and it doesn't work. You know, it really, it's not effective treatment. I find it really, I mean, we talk about this often up, you know, is the label. Anytime someone yeah. tries to throw a single word on you, it's like, oh, it doesn't feel good, no matter what yeah. the word is. Right? Yeah, sure. exactly. You know, my mom always used to tell me when I was growing up, you know, you can do two things with the label. You can either, you know, wear it, or you can tell the other person that gave it to you to lick it and stick it, you know, <laughs> you stick it somewhere else. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah and, and again, I think it, and I don't mean to harp on this this difference between men and women thing, but they're, they're I don't, I don't walk down the street I, I, I will, I'll put it this way. I walk down the street waving a lot of different flags, you know, 
I'm proud of a lot of different things in my life, a lot of different identities, a lot of different movements that I'm part of. And one of them is not male victim of sexual abuse. There is not a fucking movement for me or for you. Like there's a little bit, there's, there's men's stuff, um, but it's, it, it doesn't fit into a, a, a social movement, at least not right now, or, you know, maybe there's, there's this podcast and, you know, the Mankind Project and some other things are, are moving us a, a little more into like a social normalcy, but. Well, and I, I mean, those, I, I, those shouldn't be normalized. They, I hope they're not normal experiences for every, you know, child growing up in America. But yeah, unfortunately, they are <laughs> for a lot of people. But I think but you know, yes. that's yeah. why, I, why I'm so glad you're here today and, and talking about this and sharing it. I think it goes back to the things we have talked about, about being vulnerable, mm. right? Mm. And authenticity. That's mm. what, what, you know, beyond being a modern man and ma modern masculinity, it's being a human being. Right. Authentic, vulnerable. And the more vulnerable, the more you share what you think is the deepest, darkest, secretest, most shitty thing about you. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, we didn't hang up on you, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't end this call. Like, oh, Ben's <laughs> a bad guy. We get out of here, right? Yeah. Like, oh, again, you realize, wow, this experience right. does happen to more and more people, which which can bring you together. And yeah, we don't we don't need flags and parades. Yeah, we do need to talk about. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, from from a real kind of like, uh, it gets better sort of um, place in my heart. You know, I just say to anybody who I, who I encounter that telling the deepest darkest secret you have which for me was you know the, the things i've talked about um it not only it is it not a is it a weight off your chest eventually but but it, it does require going through these moments of feeling like the 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 world will end that that death is you know and oh man it, something is dying in, in that moment you know um when i was as as a 13 year old, you know, when I went on the internet, which was brand new at the time, and I and I looked up sexual abuse perpetrator, you know, I had this, it was a religious experience for me, I, I looked up at the sky, and I thought, you know, God would, would, would eliminate me in that moment for admitting to myself, you know, there, there was no one else around even, but just to admitting to myself that, that deep dark secret had actually happened and when it didn't happen first of all i stopped believing in god right after that which is a whole other podcast but um <laughs> temporarily at least um but to you know living through i think sexual abuse in in some ways for me pales in comparison in some ways to living through those moments of admitting it you know those are the really intense intense moments of fear um and it's that's my experience i'm, I'm certainly not speaking for um others that, that you mentioned the the part of you that feels like it's dying when you when you're sharing mm -hmm. that talking about it you know i i would suggest that's the victim right that victim is who died and you're not sure if you can go on without that. Mm. And so you find it, you can. Right. Yeah. And now, and now I'm like, I'm not a victim anymore. I'm not, I never was a perpetrator. I don't think <laughs> like I'm. And, and again, that's come from, I, 
not just doing my therapy and everything, but also doing not doing this work and telling the stories over and over again. It's like, um, I'm just me. I'm a human. And, um, man, it sounds, it just sounds so corny to say that, but it, it really is, you know, true to my heart. It doesn't, because before that I was a monster before that I was a victim, you know? Um, and it doesn't feel that way anymore. Saying I'm a human is probably one of the most empowering things you can do and say. Sure. Sure. You know, to feel, to feel, I think especially from when I was a, a young kid, those feelings of alienation from humanity, you know, if, if it's true that the deepest, most fundamental question we do ask ourselves as humans is, do I belong? You know I mean? Am I part of, um, and to feel not part of the, the, the shame and the exclusion of, you know, which of course we've as a society given to, pedophiles and, and, you know, child molesters, um, in which in some ways is certainly deserved as I'm <laughs> keep reiterating over and over again, mm -hmm. yeah, right. know. not yeah, to excuse it in any way, but the, um, you know, that, that is a, I would say that's the most intense, um, feeling I've ever felt if, if this is a podcast about men talking about our feelings, the most intense feeling I have ever felt is, is that alienation, um, yeah. from the human race. And like you said, Apio, to, to say, to claim the opposite is, is very powerful. If, if you have felt the other yeah. way. Very true. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, this has been a profound and powerful conversation. Again, I want to thank you, Ben, for showing up, for being you, for bringing it. Um, and <laughs> this seems silly as hell to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, <laughs> glad you're part of the human race. You know, <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> right, right? Yeah. Welcome to the family. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys very, very much. I think um, it's, yeah, I'll just say it's rare um, to be given a, a, as much of a platform to to, to go through the whole thing and to talk honestly about it and to be heard and, and have a conversation about it, you know, in, in public, <laughs> it's like, it's just a gift. So um, thank you guys very much for what you're doing. And I'll, I'll keep listening for sure. Maybe come back sometime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Good to say. <laughs> Glad to have you again. All right. Uh, Real men feel will be live again next Tuesday, January 17th, 8 PM Eastern. We're talking with relationship and dating coach, Brandon Havener. Talk, talking about tapping into your feminine side to improve dating and relationships. So again, we've talked about some lots of different shows. You're, you're not just masculine, you're not just feminine. We're all humans. We blur all the lines. We can go different places, tap into different energies and feelings. Um, and it's a good thing. Thank you again, Ben. Thank you, Apio, as always, for joining us. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Good night, guys. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Until next time, visit realmenfeel.org, join the Real Men Feel group on Facebook, and share what you thought of this show. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com and Apio Hunter at apiohunter.com.